Great. Well, it's really good to be with you. What I have realised is I've not got one of the church Bibles, so I can tell you what page you're on, or that I will be reading the same version. So I'll just grab one of those. Well, it's really good to be here with you this afternoon. Um, I had the privilege of going to see some friends this morning in Chesterfield and was preaching at their church. And um, I came back back here. And uh, Hannah has been seeing Emma this afternoon and said to her that I was preaching Chesterfield. So Emma said, oh, double holy, double judgment. Um, so I felt very encouraged by that. <laughs> so, you know, it's great to know that you're among friends. Um, Right, there we go. We're going to be looking today at... I was thinking, actually, I thought this would be the longest passage that I've ever preached from, but it turns out it isn't, because I have preached on the whole of Malachi all at once, um, and a couple of the other minor prophets. I think even Hosea is a lot longer, actually, than Malachi, so that could be it. However, um, this does feel like possibly the most difficult passage that I've ever had to speak on, so um, hopefully we'll be blessed by it and we'll get stuff from it. And I found it really, really interesting as I've been looking through it. So we're in Acts chapter 6, 7 and 8 today. So if you want to turn with me to page 1098 in the Church Bibles, um, if you've got your own Bible, it'll be on a different page probably. And if you're looking at it on your phone, keep tapping the buttons until Acts chapter 6 turns up. So, and as most of you are aware, we're looking through the book of Acts and we're going to finish our kind of short series in Acts at the end of Acts chapter 8. So the next couple of weeks, we'll finish Acts off in our series called Mission Unstoppable. I haven't got a clicker, just hit it on one. So my title for today is Life is a Roller Coaster. Um, and I think the kind of idea of a roller coaster will help us to understand a bit of the story of Acts. So we're not going to read the passage to start with. I'm going to give you a bit of an introduction and a bit of an overview of the series. And we'll read it in chunks and look at it in chunks because it's such a long passage. Um, but do, when you go home, if you get a chance, have a read through and yeah, kind of read the whole passage um, and get what's going on. So this would give you a good handle on what's happening. So as we look kind of back at Acts, as we've seen so far, we've gone through chapters 1 to 6 and a half, and we're doing the second half of Acts chapter 6 today from verse 8. Um, and it's been a real roller coaster ride of things that are going on. So there have been like fast-paced sections where exciting things are happening. There's been dizzying highs. They've seen God do amazing work. There's been terrifying drops as persecution has come on the church. And today, in this passage, is no exception at all. The lesson that we'll learn today is that life is just like a roller coaster. There's good bits and bad bits. There's highs and lows. There's bits where we gain energy. And there's bits where we feel like we're about to die. Um, But there's always something holding on to us. On a roller coaster, there's a safety harness that comes down and, and keeps you in so that on one of the tight uh, right or left-handers, depending on which way you're going, you don't end up on the floor as a big red pizza-shaped splodge. Um, but for the Christian, we don't have a safety harness. We have Jesus holding on to us by his Spirit all the time. He keeps us safe and secure. Even when we feel terrified, we're secure and solid in Jesus. God knows what he's doing. So, we're going to do a brief overview of Acts up to now. So, Acts chapter 1, Jesus leaves his disciples on earth as he ascends into heaven. 
They add Matthias to their group in replace of Judas. Acts chapter 2, this is a short overview. Um, The scared bunch of disciples receive the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches at Pentecost. The church grows by 3,000 people in one day. And the believers start to get their act together, organising how the church is going to work. Acts chapter 3, we see the first healing in the book of Acts since Jesus ascended. And they preach again. So this is like the roller coaster is just on its way up. There's a massive kind of like bulge when it hits 3,000 people. I think this is just amazing. Then it seems to just kind of keep plodding on upwards. And then Acts chapter 4, Peter and John get arrested. And it's like the first big dip in the story. They get arrested for preaching about Jesus. So it's kind of mild pressure from the state. And that's kind of persecution dip one. It's not a massive dip, but it's the first dip. Then Acts chapter chapter 5 Jai spoke on Ananias and Sapphira. There's internal hypocrisy. People within the church causing problems for the church. And then some more miracles happen. And then the apostles are arrested again. And this time they're not just arrested and told off. They're arrested, told off, and beaten up. And told not to preach. So that's persecution dip number two, and it's a bigger one. Because it's, you know, they're not, even, they're not just told off. They're told off, and they get their heads punched in. So that's a bigger dip than the one before. And then Acts chapter 6, Ian looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but Acts chapter 6, where the demon of bureaucracy rears its ugly head. And that the church get their act together, they sort the problem out, they appoint some deacons to look after the practical running of the church so that the apostles can get on with the teaching and preaching of God's word. And then we arrive at today's passage. And this passage leads us to the third big dip in the church's life of persecution. This is by far the biggest dip yet because it ends with Stephen, one of these deacons that was picked in Acts chapter 6, eventually getting stoned to death. So it's had being told off, dip number one, told off and beaten up, dip number two, and dip number three, Stephen is actually stoned to death. This is possibly the scariest thing the church has had to put up with. Then Acts chapter 8, this isn't an overview, this is a forecast or four view, because we actually know what happens, because it says it, so it's not forecast, I guess. Um, Saul, the man who is happy to see that Stephen is stoned to death, goes on a rampage, hunting down Christians, trying to put them in prison. He's trying to round them all up like cats. It's always difficult to herd cats, but he tries to round them up and get them put away in prison. But today, like I said, we're going to spend our time looking at Stephen, and what a great guy Stephen would have been to have in your church. Now, the, the account of who Stephen is, uh, what an amazing guy. He was full of the Spirit. People in the church respected him. And he was charged with six other guys for caring for the widows. Um, who, you know, they were sorting out the food to make sure the widows were well fed. So he was, you know, trustworthy, filled with the Spirit, loved Jesus. He was a great guy. They set him up in this great ministry. And what a waste. He goes and gets stoned to death at the end of Acts chapter 7. He's the first Christian martyr. We won't dwell on this too much, but I want to say that I don't think Stephen's life was in the slightest bit wasted at the end of Acts chapter 7. He was faithful to the point of death. He trusted in Jesus. And because of that, it led him to his death. We had a bit of a chat about this in the office, thinking, actually, had Stephen run from this opportunity and and kind of bottled it and not been faithful, what would have happened to the church? Because after this, the the apostles scatter you know, all the ones, apart from the main ones, the disciples scatter and they spread to all over the known world. If Stephen hadn't 
preached and hadn't been stoned to death, maybe they wouldn't have been that scared that the church wouldn't have spread. Uh, Maybe Saul himself wouldn't have eventually become a Christian because he looks back at this point in in his ministry later on when he's become a Christian and he's saying, yeah, I was the one who stood there. I held the coats of the guys who were stoning him to death and I approved of it. What an amazing testimony that is. So I think maybe if Stephen hadn't been faithful at this point, maybe the gospel wouldn't have spread in the way that it did. However, he was faithful and it did. It's an amazing story. Um, So if we flick on to the next slide, we're going to read from Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 16. The next slide, yeah, there we go, that's the one. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, And you'll see why, because somebody is arrested. And I've just told you why. So Acts chapter 6, if you've got a Bible, we're going to read from verse 8 to the end of the chapter. So here we go. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking about this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Bit weird. So let's pray and then we'll dig into it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you gave it to the people who first receive it, that by your spirit you have protected it and kept it and there's been amazing people who have translated it and brought it to us. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your provision in that. Father, I pray that today we would see Jesus in a fresh and good light because of your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to want to be like him because he is the perfect man. Father, I thank you for who Jesus is, that he is the risen Christ, the Lord of glory. He is the one who is God and is man. Father, I thank you he gave up his life for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to want to be more and more like him because he is what pleases you. Amen. Okay. So I've read about Stephen, Acts chapter 6. He was doing miracles and wonders among the people. He was teaching them and he was speaking about Jesus to them. Now he sounds like a, a really great chap to have around. I think anyone really who can do miracles and wonders is a great chap to have around. Could you just imagine the, you know, the amounts of things you wouldn't have to do if they were there. You know, you might even have to do the tidying. He could maybe do a miracle of tidying. Um, but I, I, we don't know that he did that. Um, so he was speaking about Jesus. And it turns out that speaking about Jesus in this culture did not go down well at all with the really religious types. And I think there's an element to which that's still true today, that some of the really religious types don't like to speak about Jesus. And if you come with me to verse 10, it says, but they could not stand up against the wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. So here's a man, Stephen, who has great wisdom from God. And he also, not just does he have the wisdom, but he knows how to deliver it. 
He's a man who's got the great message of the gospel and he can pass it on in a way that people, they may get frustrated with him, but they can't find a reason to dislike him. He has the greatest message of love in the whole world and he doesn't ruin it by sharing it in an unkind or a hateful or even a kind of not bothered way. He shares it with passion. He delivered it with the Spirit of God guiding him. Because he was teaching about Jesus, and that just wouldn't do, the variety of Jews from the different synagogues locally stirred up the people to arrest him. And they got him arrested, and they got him arrested on the charge of blasphemy against God and Moses. And they also say about this holy place, and I imagine they would have done this and pointed to the temple, uh, and the law, talking about the law of Moses. And so this holy place and the law were just like the same as saying God's presence in the temple of Moses because it's the law of Moses. Then there's this really bizarre bit where at the end of the passage there's a phrase, uh, they were sat gazing at him and he had the face of an angel. How strange is it that Luke adds that bit into his account. Luke's the guy that writes the book of Acts for us. Um, He says his face is like an angel's. So when it says that Stephen had the face of an angel, it doesn't mean that one day he was just out walking in the country, he found a dead angel and he chopped its face off and he kept it for awkward legal situations. There was something much more special going on, because I don't know if you would find a dead angel. Think, if you will, of a courtroom drama that you might watch on TV. Or maybe you might have been in court yourself, maybe you've done jury service, maybe you've been in the dock, or maybe you have been a lawyer, one of those things. You may have been there, you may have not. Um, Or a witness, that's the other option. That's why I've been in court. I've been a witness in court once. Anyway, that is entirely beside the point. But this is the picture we have here. Stephen is essentially in court before the religious rulers. Stephen's the man in the dock. He's on the charge of blasphemy. And that's not a light kind of slap on the wrist charge. It's a charge that could be punishable by death. So if you're watching a TV courtroom drama where does the camera always pan to I'm going to tell you because I don't want lots of answers that destroy my point they pan to the face of the defendant the person the man or the woman who is in the dock the person who's on trial why well I think they focus in on them because you know this as well as I do that it's our face that gives us away you know when you've been caught out It's your face that says, I am guilty, and then we have to train ourselves to kind of look like we're not guilty, but we've already been caught. I think they stare and they're gazing at Stephen's face, because it's our face that gives us away. So I think what they're doing is they think, let's outline the charges that we're throwing at him. And let's see, let's have him hear the evidence. And if he flinches, you know, if he blinks, if he winks, probably inappropriate, if he cries, if he looks nervous, if he goes red or he goes pale whatever, we'll know that he's guilty of this charge. Does that make sense? You're looking at him, you're thinking, if he even looks slightly guilty, we've got him. They didn't have a category for the man with the face of an angel. What do you do with that? Here's the man in the dock, they're staring at him, they're outlining the prosecution, the prosecutor is walking up and down in a nice suit, and he's got the face of an angel. He's shone with the confidence and the glory of God. What it looked like to them, apart from he had the face of an angel, we don't know. But because of this, uh, we can take a really good guess that he didn't look scared, but he looked secure. And he didn't struggle for words, 
as we might when we're super nervous. We can assume that by the length of his sermon. Um, he was beaming with Jesus. So I want to put it to you. I think Steve, that sounded quite legal, didn't it? I put it to you that, that Stephen was a man who had a spine like a crowbar, the face of an angel, and the words of a man who is afraid of nothing. And he was longing with every fibre of his being to glorify Jesus. That's who I think Stephen was. So, let's jump into Stephen's sermon. So, Stephen's charged with blasphemy against God and Moses. His response to that charge may seem a little bit weird. We're going to read it in a second. Um, because what he does is he preaches a really long sermon. And he doesn't just give a response to, I'm not blaspheming God and I'm not blaspheming Moses because he preaches a Bible overview, or I think he would have done had he not been killed partway through. He starts with Abraham, and he just manages to get to Solomon uh, by the time that they're too furious to listen to him anymore. And we'll spend some time looking through what he says and why. And what he's, So what is he responding to? The high priest asked him um, if, he's, if they've heard, what they've heard about Stephen is true. So whether he has blasphemed God and Moses, whether or not he's been preaching blasphemy or not. I'm not sure about you, but I actually think that's not the right question for them to ask. Because they've not given him any kind of area to work with. They've said, is this true? Rather than, why do you say it? What are your reasons for saying it? Maybe we can tease out the truth. They say, is this true? Are you blaspheming or not? So I don't think it's a really a fair question. And there's no record of them asking kind of around the subject. But I think what he does is he goes on to explain um, through his preaching about Jesus and that because he's preaching Jesus that he's not blaspheming God and the law but that ultimately Jesus came to fulfil the law and the temple by being God on earth in human flesh so that we might come to know God fully because he has physically come amongst us. The high priest responds to that charge by saying, are these charges true? So, maybe pick, Stephen picks something up from Peter um, with his time with the apostles. As we've seen from Acts so far, uh, what time is it for the apostles? It's always time for a really long sermon, um, which is you know, why our church is the way it is. It's always time for a sermon. They want to teach and they want to preach about Jesus all the time, wherever and whenever they can. You give them half a chance and they're off. They're like a greyhound out of the traps. They want to speak about Jesus. They don't want anyone to stop them. Uh, and in this case, they only stop him by killing him. Please don't take note of that for today. Uh, so he sets off. And his sermon breaks down quite nicely into little chunks based on the different people that he's talking about through the Jewish history. He talks about the heads of the nations of Israel that the Jews are so proud to be a part of. He talks about Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David and Solomon. You may have heard of some of those guys. So we're nearly ready to look at the sermon, but we need one little key to help us along. Okay, so try and remember this as we're going through. There's two things I kind of want you to put on a shelf in your mind somewhere so you can see them. So one, the Jews have got a special place, a place where God lives. They have a country, Israel. They have a special city, uh, the city of David. And they have a special place in that city, the temple of God. 
that was built by Solomon, David's son. And in that temple is a special place, the most special place, the place where God dwells. And they called it the Holy of Holies. It was a perfect cube-shaped room. Um, And that's where they understood that God had lived among his people. The Jews have always had a special place. And for them at the minute, as they're standing listening to this, as they point to the temple and say, he's blasphemed the temple, inside that temple, as you kind of get towards the very centre, there's this cube box where they say God lives in the Holy of Holies. And he lives in the middle of his people. So that's the first thing. The Jews have a special place for God, where God lives among them. And two, the Jews have a special word. That's the word that came to them from Moses. This is the law of Moses, they call it, the first five books of our Bibles. They knew how God wanted them to live because of the law that they had received from God. All that is essentially by way of introduction to looking at this sermon that Stephen gives. So remember those two things, special place and the word of God. So Stephen's aim is to show them that Jesus isn't trying to break those two things into pieces. Jesus hasn't come to, to like smash those to bits and ruin the Jewish system. Jesus has come to fulfill and make sense of them. He wants his audience to see that Jesus is what they're really waiting for. They shouldn't be longing for the temple. They should be longing for the man who is going to come and fulfill it. And that's Jesus. Okay, so let's go in. Let's see what he's got to say for himself. So, chapter 7. We're looking at Abraham to start with. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? Stephen, go through it. This is his sermon. Uh, To this he replied, that's Stephen, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no children. God spoke to him in this way, Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves." God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Okay, so that's his kind of overview as a man, Abraham. I really do love how clever Stephen is, by the way, he starts off making sure that his audience know what he thinks of them. So in his his first bit of response, he wants them to realise that he considers them to kind of be family. Because he says, brothers and fathers, listen to me. He doesn't talk down to them and patronise them. He doesn't kind of put a massive wall of separation. He talks to them as family. So he starts out with someone so important to the Jews. He goes back to Abraham. And Abraham is the father of the Jews and the Jewish nation. He is essentially the Jewish man. Abraham is like a Jewish superhero. He's so Jewish that if you cut him, he would bleed bagels. That's how Jewish Abraham was. So why does Stephen go there? Abraham isn't even his name at the beginning of the story. Uh, It's Abraham. God changes it later on. And he wasn't even a Jew. God met this pagan man 
who didn't have a clue about Jewish things. They didn't even exist. He didn't know God, but he worshipped many gods. He didn't know God's special place or his presence with his people. He's not even circumcised like a good Jew should be. So in the first place, he picks Abraham. And Abraham has nothing to offer God at all. But one day, God meets with him. But where does he meet with him? He meets with him in Mesopotamia, which is the kind of right-hand strip of Iraq uh, today. He's nowhere near Israel, God's special place. God meets a pagan man in a pagan country who doesn't bring anything to the table, and God picks him to be his man. He calls him out of his homeland to travel to a new one that God would show him and give to his descendants. Abraham only really inherited the land after he died because it belonged to his kids. God also promises him that he will make him the father of a great nation, even though he's really old and childless. As has been said in some of the previous uh, sermons in in the book of Acts, uh, we've put the cut-off point for really old at 40, but at this point, Abraham is 100 years old. No kids, he's 100. And God says, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. Uh, It's never too late. And eventually, God comes through for him on that promise. God told him that his family would be taken into a land uh, that wasn't their own, and they'd be treated harshly as slaves. So Abraham is a man of great faith in a greater God. He goes with God, even though he doesn't know where he's going to. He eventually believes that God will give him this great nation after him. And God does something else special with Abraham. He makes a covenant with him, a special promise that he would be a great nation, that they would be their own land, And the sign of that promise was that the males in this nation will be circumcised. So, Abraham, he was no Jew, didn't know God. He doesn't uh, doesn't know the land that God had promised him. And he doesn't know God's word apart from what God had actually spoken to him. So God began his great nation of Abraham, like with Abraham, and he journeyed with him to the place that he wanted to be. There was nothing Abraham brought to the table. He just trusted God when he came along and found him and picked him. So then, we'll jump on to the next man that Stephen talks about. So verses 9 through 16. If you want to read along with me. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain good gained the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck uh, all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering to our fathers. And our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem uh, and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. So the story continues. For Abraham, he has Isaac and then Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. You may know the story of Joseph from the Bible or the musical, that uh, you know, that kind of is made from the Bible story. 
He's the man who has nothing to offer God at all apart from a great coat. Now, he's got an amazing coat. It's really, it's better than my coat. It's a brilliant coat he's got. So, as a young man slash old boy, we don't know quite how old he was, he was probably a bit annoying, Joseph. Um, And his brothers were going to kill him. In fairness, he might have only just been a little bit annoying because in families, it doesn't take siblings much to actually want to destroy another member of the family. Um, But instead of killing him, one of the brothers kind of steps in and he says, instead of killing him, why don't we just sell him and ruin his coat? So that's what they did. They sold him to some travelling traders who were on their way to Egypt where he got a job. He got imprisoned um, and then because of God's faithfulness, he came through that and he ended up working for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he became the prime minister of Egypt. Then famine hit the land uh, and Joseph knew that he... Uh, sorry, the famine hit the land as Joseph knew. Because God had shown him in a dream that this was going to happen. And he had a great food storing up plan put in place. And the famine didn't just hit Egypt, but it hit Canaan as well. And this was where all his family were living north of Egypt. So he stored up food for seven years. Then as the famine spread to the neighbouring countries, uh, his brothers, who, who had wanted him dead, needed some food. So they came to Egypt. They didn't know it was him but he helped them very shrewdly and he ended up saving his whole family from starvation because he was the Prime Minister of Egypt. And he did that because of the wisdom that God had given him. So they come down one day, they say, please, can we have some food? We're going we're gonna to die. So he, he gives them some food, plays a bit of a trick. Then they have to come back and he, they make him bring back the brother they hadn't brought, his actual biological brother from the same mother. And then they send him back, but they keep one behind. And then eventually he brings his father and the whole family. And he brings his whole family out of a place where there's no food into Egypt, where he's got it stored up. Here again, we've got a guy who has nothing to offer God but a nice coat. And in the end, he didn't have that, and God didn't want it. But God uses him. And get this bit. Where does God use him? God uses this guy in Egypt. He's nowhere near Israel. He's not in God's special place. God is working in Egypt. So not not only is God working in Egypt, but he's working... uh, But Joseph didn't know God's word as well. He didn't know this. Apart from the stories of the past that he'd heard from his father, he didn't know God's word. So God worked through him and brought safety and life to his people. Otherwise, they'd have starved and been conquered by other nations. Because God chose to use Joseph in Egypt, a land that wasn't God's own land, God's people were kept safe and secure and they were rescued from death and destruction. The next person he goes for, and this is quite a long passage, as he goes to Moses. So if you want to read with me, uh, this is verses 17 to 43. Okay. As the time drew near for God to fulfil his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born. He was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated with all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. 
when Moses was 40 years old, very old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought uh, that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, your brothers, why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner, and he had two sons. After 40 more years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and he did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and I've come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they have rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And for this fellow Moses, who has led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol uh, in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held celebration in honour of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? For 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel, you have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rephan the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Okay, so you might know the story of Moses as well. So Moses, pretty much similarly to everybody else as far as I'm aware, was born as a baby. Uh, He was born in Egypt, just as a new pharaoh wanted all the babies of the Israelites killed because they were getting so many that they threatened him. So they kept him in the house, Uh, for the first three months, and then they put him in a basket on the river for a while. Maybe a few hours, we don't know. And he spent 40 years in Pharaoh's palace where he was brought up by Pharaoh's daughter, trained and educated. Um, He goes one day, at 40 years old, to see his people. And they're being treated appallingly by the Egyptians. And he goes, and in the process of seeing them, he tries to protect a fellow Israelite, and he kills the Egyptian in the process. To save him. The Israelites kind of wonder, who do you think you are? He's 
trying to lend them a helping hand. But they just turn on him. They say, who do you think you are? You're going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? So Moses runs for his life. And he runs to Midian. And when he's in Midian, he marries a girl. And he works for her dad as a shepherd. Uh, His dad was called Jethro. Nice. Uh, So Moses, a child that God loves, who's not with God's people, he's not in God's land, he's not even in Egypt, where God has previously worked. And despite all his education, he's ended up in a field as a shepherd. Nowhere important, and it's there, nowhere important that God meets with him. And this is another 40 years later on. So he's now 80, and God's meeting with him to send him into the mission field. You're never too old. So at 80, Moses goes and eventually and very messily gets the rest of the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, And he takes them on a long, wandering journey in the desert for another 40 years heading to the land that God had promised them. On the way, God would speak to Moses, and Moses would speak to the people. The people rejected it, though. Uh, Once, uh, as Stephen recalls, once while Moses was with God, instead of the people waiting, you know, yearning to hear what God was going to say to them, they couldn't be bothered to wait for a few days to hear what Moses was going to say. While Moses is up the mountain listening and talking with God, the Israelites band together, they gather up a big pile of gold, and they give it to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, you know, make us a God to worship. Um, and, Moses, uh, and Aaron, Moses' brother, makes them a golden calf. We don't know how big it was, but he makes them this golden calf. And then Moses comes down the mountain, and you can just imagine it as well, as you're coming down sunny country, you're coming down the mountain and there's this big golden thing at the bottom of the mountain. You can imagine it just like gleaming and shining and you can just see it thinking, what has happened while I've been away? Moses comes down the mountain and he gets furious. You know, absolutely livid. Comes down the mountain, what the blazes is going on? He smashes the golden calf into pieces, but before he does that, he burns it. So he burns up the altar it's built on, he smashes it to pieces And he scatters the powder of this golden calf into the river and then he makes the people of Israel drink it so that they know it wasn't their God. It's a little bit weird. But that's what we read in Exodus. So throughout their time in the wilderness, the Israelites, God's people, were continually unfaithful to God. They wandered from false God to false God. They started with the calf and they went to Molech and Rephan. They're the ones that Stephen mentions here. So Moses... What was he like? He was a man who was rejected by his own people who met God in the middle of nowhere in the land uh, of Israel's future enemies. Midian is a place that later on in the Bible story that people attack God's people from. And he called him to rescue his people from slavery. God chose to use Moses. They had no land to enjoy but they were busy travelling for the land that God had promised them. All the while Moses was telling the people God's own words so that they knew who they should be. God provided for them day and night uh, with food and direction. And eventually, God was experienced physically among his people because eventually they built the tabernacle, which was like a really posh tent that was square and inside it had a, a cube room that was like the Holy of Holies. And every time they moved, they would pack it all up, take it away. When they settled down for a bit, they would 
roll out all the sheets, they would peg it up, they would build the kind of board around it, and they would experience God's presence because they could see this tent in the middle of their camp. And I'm not sure about this, but I have wondered uh, this week whether, because this was God's special tent, if all the sheets and the poles and bits and pieces went into the bag easily when they packed it up. Um, My tent never seems to do that. So even with all that going on, God feeding his people, directing his people, speaking to his people, and being present with them, they were still an unfaithful bunch. Moses, the man that they had rejected, he was God's man. He heard God's voice and he led God's people. And there's a key verse uh, in this section that Moses said to the people, and it's verse 37. If you come with me, we'll just read verse 37 and keep this one in mind. It says, uh, this is that Moses told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. Moses says that one day God will do this, but they, the person, will be bigger and better than I am. And really, you'll probably treat him just the same way as you treated me. Okay, let's jump on to the last section um, of the, the sermon that he gives. So from verses 44. This is the Joshua to Solomon bit. It says, and I think at this point he's kind of ramping up because the people are getting agitated, so he wants to cover as much as he can. And he says, Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony uh, with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations. God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who, was enjoying, who enjoyed God's favour, and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And that's kind of where he ends his Bible overview. Joshua took charge of God's people after Moses died and he took them into the land that God had promised to Abraham. Uh, They took the tabernacle, God's tent, with them and eventually they went through having judges and prophets in charge and then they had the king so they had Saul first and they had David and he was a great king David asked God a question he said can I build you a really nice house to replace the tabernacle God said it was a good idea but that Solomon his son would complete it rather than David and it was enormous it was beautiful it was gold filled and God's presence among his people was experienced from the centre of the temple it had its own holy of holies just like the tabernacle did but when Solomon finished it, he said this phrase, and it's a key verse in this chapter as well. So that's verse 48. Come with me again to verse 48. So Solomon builds this massive temple, and he says these words. Imagine being the man who's built a great temple for God to live in. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. Solomon had a good understanding of God. God was much bigger than the house that he lived in, or the land that his people lived in even. Then, Stephen said all that, and you can see his audience are getting cross. (coughs) Stephen kind of changes track, 
And I think this is not a kind of sudden anger that's come over him, but I imagine that he's, he's not giving a sanitised sermon. Um, I think there would have maybe been some heckling from the crowd, maybe a bit of shouting, uh, maybe even some fierce and obvious rejection of his message. You can kind of see, can't you, when you're talking to people, whether they're taking in what you're saying or not, can't you? You know, whether they're interested, whether they're excited, whether they're engaged or whether they're bored, whether they're falling asleep, if they're confused or if they're irate, if they've got the red mist that is descending. I think Stephen is reading his audience quite well. He knows it's kind of now or never for these guys, and he just tells them what it's like. So let's read what Stephen says to these people. You can just imagine as Stephen flips him shouting at them. He says, you stiff-necked people, from verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through the angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen says to these guys, the religious elite, he doesn't say, you're like Abraham, or you're like Moses, or you're like David. You're like the great leaders of God's people in the past. He doesn't say that. He says, you're just like the Israelites. It's not a flattering comparison, really. Why? Because you're stiff-necked. You pick your own way and you won't be guided by God. You are uncircumcised on the inside. He says, on the outside you might be, but your heart and your emotions are not behind what you say you believe. And you don't want to listen to God's voice. You resist God. You are just like them. And they were rubbish. You persecuted all the prophets. And these are the people who told you the same message as me. They told you about the righteous one that was going to come, about Jesus. And when he turned up, the God-man on earth, you killed him too. You have God's word, but you do not obey it. Stephen kind of metaphorically gives them both barrels and they riot together to kill him. Apparently in, at this time, stonings took two forms. There was two ways that you could be stoned. There was the, the organised way, where one big stone was placed on the person being stoned and would kind of crush them to death and they would suffocate. At the same time, people may throw other stones about the size of a fist at them as they were dying which is not pleasant, but it's more civilised than option two. This is where, essentially, a riotous mob would get whatever they could. They would chase the person outside the city and they would throw rocks at them until they were dead. These people went for the latter option, chucking bricks at a man until he dies. Not really the response of good leaders. They prove his point by their actions. But they act for us as a perfect contrast with Stephen. As you look at them, they're barbaric, they're chaotic, they're hate-filled. And look at Stephen. Even as the bricks are being thrown at him, this guy, you've just got to see what he's like. In his distress, he sees Jesus. Let's read the passage from verses uh, 54. When they heard this, as Stephen has given them both barrels, when they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, 
I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Often the term he fell asleep is a kind of polite Bible phrase of saying, he died. But the comparison is just enormous. So the religious rulers, these are the ones that are hate-filled, they're chaotic, they're barbaric, they've got their fingers in their ears going, la, 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 I don't want to hear any more of this. But that's not who Stephen is. Even in his distress, he sees Jesus. He sees heaven open. Jesus and Jesus is standing up. Often in the Bible, we hear of Jesus being sat down. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, when we look through that, that we see that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. But here he stood up. It's as though Jesus comes to the front door of heaven and he kind of leans out of it and he looks over, arms stretched wide, saying to Stephen, welcome home. And what are Stephen's words? They're like the words of Jesus on the cross. Lord, receive my spirit. Don't hold this sin against them. There couldn't be a starker contrast between two groups of people. Stephen, loving to the end, dying for what he believes, seeking their best, even though they're killing him, and them seeking to put him to death because they can't accept what he's saying rather than face the facts and deal with it like men. And then, the first line of Acts chapter 8, It says, Saul was there giving approval to his death. Saul was one of the kind of Pharisees and later he becomes a Christian. But Saul approved of their killing. He goes on to ravage the church. He persecutes and imprisons whoever he can find in the church. Um, And we know that this event stuck with him. He mentions it later on as he's a Christian missionary. But I have wondered, would he have ever been converted if Stephen hadn't been martyred here? Would the persecution that had arisen led to the spreading worldwide of the gospel? Or would it have just stayed in Jerusalem? Would it have been quiet and timid? Because that's how to avoid trouble. We don't know, but we can thank God that it didn't and that it spread out. So that's Stephen's sermon. But the question that really has to follow is this. So what? You know, he's done all that amazing stuff. He's a great guy. But so what? The first thing that I want to say at this point is that in this passage, in this chapter in a bit, Stephen isn't the hero. And I think that's amazing in itself. This passage, even though it's about what Stephen said and did, Stephen wouldn't say that it's about him. His life wasn't about himself. It was all about Jesus. Stephen's plan with his sermon is to show these people that they're missing out He's not trying to prove them wrong for the sake of being the one that's always right. He's trying to show them that you're missing out. Not that they're stupid or that he needs to show them up, but they're seriously missing out. You know in the Olympics when they do uh, the triple jump, you know, the hop, skip, jump. Um, I got that wrong with my fingers there, but you know what I mean. The triple, they do hop, skip and jump people. The key to doing that well is getting your run up right. So they spend ages learning how far from the board they need to be. There's a takeoff board and they have to land their foot on it and then 
the jump counts. And Stephen is saying, you know, this is what you've got to get sorted out. He's saying that essentially they are people that he's talking to. What you're doing is every time you're coming to the Bible story, you're getting your run-up wrong. You're getting your run-up wrong, you're hitting the board, you're hitting a foul, and every time it doesn't count. Can you imagine training for four years to go to the Olympics to do the hop, skip and the jump, to turn up at the Olympics and to hit three fouls in a row to be knocked out in the first round? That would be terrible. Stephen is saying, you've got to get the history right. You've got to get your run-up right. He says, but you're doing it and you're understanding it wrong. He says, what you need to do, and what he's showing them here, is that if you sort your run-up out, take the time, pace it out, see where you need to start properly. When you hit the takeoff board, you'll go hop, skip, jump, and it'll count, and you'll land at the feet of Jesus. He wants them to see that their history should have Jesus in view from the beginning. When he talks about all the heroes of the story, they weren't perfect people. Some of them weren't even that good. When Jesus is the hero of the story, we can see how he is the true and better Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, and he's the true and better tabernacle and the temple. Jesus is the better Abraham because he becomes the head of a greater nation than just the Jewish nation, but a nation and community of people in the whole world that love and trust and believe in Jesus. Jesus is the better Joseph because he saves his people not from just death and destruction because of starvation, but because they've rebelled and rejected against God and are heading for a judgment that will lead them to an eternal death and destruction. And Jesus can save people from that. Jesus is the better Moses because he leads his people not out of slavery to Pharaoh, but out of slavery to sin and rebellion against God. Jesus is the better Joshua because he leads his people into a better promised land where they'll never be able to be taken away from it. The Bible calls it the new heavens and a new earth. Jesus is the better David because he's the one true, perfect and good king that's willing to lay down his life for his people. Jesus is the better Solomon because he's ultimately wise and ultimately faithful. Jesus is the better and perfect tabernacle and temple because he is the God-man. He's not just a thing or a building where God's spirit was, but he's the walking, talking, living, loving person who is God and he lived with his people. And here's where we're going to end today. Those great leaders of the past led a nation under God who were messy and dysfunctional, but God was good to them. We're not really any different to those guys in some ways. However, now, uh, we haven't got just a pretty good man as our leader. We have the best man. We have the God man. We have Jesus. God has always dealt with a people and not just individuals. God wants to see more people become a part of the community of Jesus. Jesus opens up access to his community by dying on a cross, rising from death, ascending into heaven, and sending his spirit to his people. Jesus says to you and to me, join my community. The way that we do that is to repent of our 
rejection and rebellion against God, to put our faith and our trust in Jesus. And when we do that, we join his family. If we're in his family, we stay in it and we get to know Jesus better and better. And the way we do that is we repent of our sins and we carry on believing in Jesus. And our family aim is to see the family grow and to see the family grow in family likeness. Stephen really had the family likeness. Jesus makes family entry really, really easy and really, really hard. It's really easy to repent and believe in Jesus, but it's really hard to see our need to repent and believe. God opens up our eyes to see our rejection of God and our sin that we have, and we should act to that by repenting and believing in Jesus, by turning from our sin, by trusting Jesus. And then we're called to live lives like Jesus did. He went to death for us. We're not called to waste our lives um, by doing something stupid and dying. But we're called to die to ourselves and let God control the outcome of our lives. So Stephen was a man with a spine like a crowbar. He had the face of an angel. Every fibre of his being longed to bring glory to Jesus. Can we say that we are a people who have spines like crowbars because Jesus has hold of me and nothing in life will knock me out of his hands. Can we say that we have the faces, we have faces that shine with the glory of God because we spend time with him? Can we say we long with every fibre of our being to bring glory to Jesus? Let me encourage you to get to know Jesus. If you don't know him yet, repent from your rejection of God and believe in him. If you do already know Jesus, let me encourage you to repent of your rejection and rebellion against God and believe in him more, grow in the family likeness and then share that with other people so that the family of God can grow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you that um, that he is the God-man, the man who came from heaven to earth. He knows what it's like to be a, a human, living, breathing person. He knows what it's like to struggle with desires to do things that we ought not to do. Father, we thank you that he is perfect. Father, we thank you that he was willing, even though he was perfect, even though he didn't deserve to die, that he was willing to go to the cross, that he faced death and destruction and rejection and rebellion against you so that we might be able to be brought back into your family by faith and trust and repenting of our sins in Jesus. Father, we thank you that he is good and glorious and gracious and kind and merciful and good. Father, I pray that you would help us to want to be more like him, that, you would want, that we would want to grow in the family likeness of Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see the family of Jesus continue to grow. Father, we thank you that it is something that is infectious. Father, I pray that you would help us to spread the glory of your great Son, the Lord Jesus, wherever we are and whatever we're doing. And we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his good name that we say these things. Amen.